for her team. And Father, we thank you for everybody that's involved. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would continue working in the hearts and the lives of those who came through. Father, the, the moms and dads and the children, Father, that you would use that and remind them of their need for Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we ask, Lord, as we look at your word, Father, that you empower me, that you would enable me, Father, that you would enable me to step aside and allow your spirit to work in and through me, and Lord, that you would speak through me. We need you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to believe that we're getting close to the end of the book of Colossians. Next Sunday will be the end of it, and then we can begin the Advent season for the book. Well, Good News Bible Church's vision statement is, we seek to be a diverse family of believers, reconciled by God, impacting the lives of people in Logan Square and Humboldt Park communities through the gospel of Jesus Christ, accomplished as we see each person connected with God and with the church, discipled, transformed, and on mission. On mission. How do we live a mission-driven life? Well, our text today in Colossians 4, chapter, um, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, I think shows us what it means to live a mission-focused life. We see in this God's call on the Colossians and on us to partner in ministry. And Paul urges them to pray for him, for open doors and for the preaching of the word. He encourages them to be wise in the way they act toward non-believers. He literally, essentially, says, you to be on mission. You to be missional in your daily life. Most of us, as I look around here, most of us will never leave our homes, will never leave our country to be involved in ministry. And yet, God has placed each of us in a family, in a school, in a job, in a community to be a light to the unsaved world around them. And the Bible is full of examples of people whom God placed in positions which seem to be secular and yet very much in a position to be missional. Think of Joseph, sold into slavery, became the head of a part of his household, and eventually became second in command in Egypt. Daniel rose to power in Babylon after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, eventually rising to power under King Darius. You remember him being thrown in the lion's den along with that. Obadiah. Someone that some of you may not remember, but he was in the court of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and God used him to save many prophets' lives. Nehemiah, God used in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And Esther became queen and was used by God to save the Jews from destruction. God calls us to be on mission. 
An omniscient Christian is one whose focus is seeing the kingdom of God come into being. We aren't distracted by schoolwork. We aren't distracted by our jobs. We aren't distracted by things of the family. We realize that God has placed us where we are for purpose and for reason. We understand that God's called us to be disciples and to make disciples. And wherever we're placed, that God has called us to be involved in the Great Commission. So question, what does it mean? What are the characteristics, rather, of a mission-driven person? As Paul closes out his letter to the Colossians, he exhorts them in their prayer life, in their daily conduct, in their conversations, strong prayer life, coupled with godly conduct and speech, or characteristics of a mission-driven life. First, Paul exhorts the Colossians to pray. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the first, Paul says that the Colossians there are to be steadfast, they're to be persistent. The NIV and the NLT says devote yourselves in prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. What comes to your mind when you think of something being devoted? We're in football season, and I haven't said anything about the University of Alabama all season. How about y'all? Everybody knows that I love the University of Alabama Crimson Tide. But I must confess that as much as I love Alabama, I'm not that devoted fan that I see in Cubs fans. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I am a Cubs fan. But I want you... I want you to know that when I think of devoted fans, I might immediately, Cubs fans, you know, I've been here for about 35 years, and when I came into the city, there was this whole thing with the Sox and the Cubs, and, you know, and I, being you, I didn't know what was going on. But man, I, I realized that Cubs fans were so faithful. They knew their players, they knew the stats, and before 2015, these people were not fair-weather fans. They were committed no matter what happened, no matter how bad a year the Cubs were having, and they had a lot of them. They never gave up hope. Never. Never. It didn't matter how terrible the team was. Cubs fans were committed to that team. And as Harry Carey used to say, any team can have a bad century. <laughs> I even heard about this hot dog stand over on Narragansett in Addison, and they flew for years, many years, this flag with a big C. And down below it, 
if it takes forever. If it takes forever. See, that's true devotion. You never give up. Never even think of giving up. These Cubs fans never thought about giving up. Never. I used to think, man, what commitment. Well, in the same way, we're to never give up. We're to never think about stopping praying. We're to always be ready. Pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. Pray when you believe. And pray when you have doubts. Couldn't help but think of the father who came to Christ who had the son that was demonic. And Christ asked him if he believed, and he said, I, I believe, but help my disbelief, my unbelief. And we too can go to God in the midst of struggles, in the midst of doubts, and say, God, you know my struggles, you know my doubts. Do you ever think about giving up? I believe Paul is so very clearly saying here, don't do it, don't give up, keep at it. And Paul himself was that kind of man. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Colossians, he says, We always pray for you. In verse 9 of chapter 1, We have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you. Paul was devoted to prayer. Jesus Christ himself taught persistent prayer through two parables. I thought they were kind of funny, and I had down that they were uh, humorous parables, and, and Chris said, what do you mean by that? She looked at my sermon. But the first one is in Luke 11, and this guy and his family, they're in bed. And his friend comes and knocks on the door and asks to borrow some bread. The guy didn't stop knocking when the guy said, go away. And he kept knocking. I find it humorous in a sense that this guy wouldn't leave. And he kept knocking. He kept knocking. And finally, his friend got up and gave him bread. The second parable, a widow keeps bugging this unwilling judge to give her legal protection from her opponents. And at first, the judge wouldn't do it. But she kept on. She was devoted to getting her protection. He finally relents and grants her request. Commitment to being consistent in that. Well, the point of these two parables is not that God's unwilling or unconcerned about our needs, but that we should persist. We should keep on praying until he grants our request. George Mueller began praying for the salvation of five individuals back in November of 1844. And after 18 months, the first man was converted. Five more years passed, the second man was saved. After six more years, a third man came to faith. And then in a sermon, Mueller shared about how he'd been praying daily for two 
other men, those two, for 36 years. And just before Mueller's death, 53 years of praying, one of the last two came to faith. The fifth man, he came to Christ a few years after Mueller died. We're to be devoted, steadfast in our prayer. Secondly, we're to be watchful. Paul says to stay awake. It's easy, isn't it, to be praying and get kind of lazy, maybe want to doze off, maybe our hearts can sometimes be indifferent. It's easy to be distracted, isn't it? We now have our cell phones that we carry with us everywhere we go, right? And so when we're praying, we can get a text, or the phone can ring, or the news that pops up, comes up. All these various things can, can stop us, or some of us may remember, oh, I've got a roast in the oven. It's easy to be distracted. Or you may be like me sometimes and decide that I'm going to pray for a couple hours. And you pray for your family, you pray for the church, and you pray for yourself and all your needs, and you, you, you pray for the mayor and the city council, and you pray for the governor and the legislature here in Illinois, and you pray for the president and Congress, and you go on and on, all the missionaries in the world that you know, and you look at your watch, and five minutes have happened. <laughs> five minutes. James 5, 16 says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. Wonderful results. See, they avail much. One version says, they matter to God. We're to be watchful, alert. Consider a Marine. Let's say he's over in the Middle East in the midst of war. And this Marine is on watch. Now, compare him to the security guard over at Aldi on Elston. Which one of these two men do you think would be more alert and watchful. I think we all would acknowledge that it better be the soldier versus the security guard. You see, they have to be alert. The one who knows he's on the front lines is going to be alert. It may be my problem and maybe your problem sometimes is that we think with a security guard at Aldi and not the Marine. When in reality, with the Marine in the midst of a spiritual war, in our families, and our buddies, and our friends are counting on us. We'll be devoted. We'll be alert, aware we're in a spiritual battle. We'll be thankful. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 
prayer and thanksgiving go together, right? They go together. I think that, that in the midst of life, sometimes when we get hit in the gut with things that life throws our way, we can, we can begin to, uh, to question God. We can begin to question His love. We begin to question His goodness. We begin to question His wisdom and His sovereignty. And we need to remember and know before we go into a crisis situation, four things about God in order to stay thankful. First, remember that He is good. Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. God is good. And secondly, God is all wise. Romans 11 says, How great are the rich of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. God is good. God is all wise. And He's sovereign. Ephesians 1, as I said over and over, is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Because I see God's sovereignty. I see his hand, his plan. And chapter 1, verse 11, says that in him, in Christ, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And he has a purpose and a plan for each of our lives. And Satan wants to hit us with lies in the midst of struggles, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of disappointment, Satan wants to hit us. Remember, God is sovereign. He's good and he's wise. And fourth, his love is perfect. His love is perfect. Lamentation 3, steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We serve a God whom we can trust. He is good. He is all wise. He is sovereign. And he is perfect in his love. And so when we face these hardships, we can still be thankful in the midst of the hardship. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11 has a verse that just, it, it just shouts out God's sovereignty and power. But at the same time, his tenderness and his love. It says, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. We see God's power, his sovereignty. We see his tenderness, his loving care. He watches over us in the midst of life. We're to be devoted to prayer. We're to be alert, watchful. We're to be thankful. We're having told the Colossians and us, how to pray. Paul now tells us what to pray. Verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us. 
that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul now gives us four ways to pray, four very practical prayer requests that we should be praying. First, we're to pray for those on the front lines. Paul was on the front line. And he says, pray for us too. As you pray, pray for us. Take time to pray for us. As I was thinking about prayer and Paul's need for prayer and my need for prayer, and for the elders, for the staff, I thought, would you like a better pastor? I'm sure the answer is yes. And I would too. And you can have a better pastor, and I can be your better pastor, if you will pray for me. If you pray for me. See, Paul cried out to the Colossians asking for prayer. I'm telling you up front here, I need your prayer. Pastor Kerry needs your prayer. The staff of Good News needs your prayer. The elders need your prayer. Our missionaries need your prayers. Pray for those on the front line. Remember, we're in a spiritual war. Secondly, Paul says, pray for open doors for spreading the gospel. He says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Open doors. Open doors almost always in the New Testament mean opportunity to share the gospel. You could be sharing the gospel with your brother or your sister or your mother or a friend or individual that you know, or it could be opportunity to go to another church to share the gospel or to another city or to another country or to unreached people. Paul the Lord says, pray for open doors. And third, pray for boldness despite difficulties. Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison when he wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. He was in prison. But he didn't ask here for his readers to pray that he could get out of prison. Instead, he asked for boldness in his current unpleasant situation. He knows he's in prison for sharing the gospel. He knows that he's where God wants him to be. He simply asked for boldness. And we know that he shared the gospel with many while he was there, and many came to Christ. You see, too often it's about us, isn't it? For Paul, it was about Christ. It was about the gospel. And I confess, I like pleasure. I like comfort. But Paul was in prison. He didn't ask at that point to be released. We're to pray for those on the front line. We're to pray for open doors. We're to pray for boldness in the midst of difficulties. And fourth, we're to pray for clarity in presenting the gospel and teaching the word. Paul's final request is that he could be have clarity in sharing the gospel. 
Well, what is the gospel? I love what one man wrote. The gospel starts with bad news. Our sins have alienated us from God. Because he is holy and just, God cannot brush away our sins. The penalty must be paid. And God has declared that that penalty for our sins is death, eternal separation from him. No amount of good works can pay that penalty. But what we cannot do, God has done for us. And in love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. And he lived in perfect obedience to his father. His death on the cross was substitutionary. He paid the debt that sinners deserve. And God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and now offers full pardon and eternal life to every sinner who will turn from their sins to him and trust in the risen Christ to save him or her. Think about it. Here's this veteran Paul. He knows the gospel. <laughs> he went through a lot to come to Christ. He knows the gospel. He's writing a letter to these young believers in this church at Colossae. And he's asking them to pray that he might present the gospel. That he might unveil this mystery of Jesus Christ. Please pray. Pray for our preaching team that we would clearly communicate God's word every Sunday. Pray for us. Pray for our elders and for our deacons that we will walk with God. Pray that in the midst of the spiritual war that we're going through day by day, pray that we'll be wise and discerning that we'll be faithful to our God? Well, Paul shifts his focus from our indirect involvement in ministry through prayer to our daily involvement in evangelism and, and ministry that each of us should have where we live and where we work and where we play. Paul encourages the Colossians to be godly witnesses for Jesus Christ. He kind of lays out two parts of being a godly witness. First is your walk, and secondly are your words. Paul writes in verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The first we need to have a godly walk. And we're not going to have a perfect walk. We fail. We miss the boat. We'll pray that we could be effective witnesses in our conduct. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. This means basically we're to live in line with what God's Word says. So non-believers will see the beauty of Jesus Christ somehow by His grace that people will see Christ in us, in our relationships with others. Our witness, our walk, is a platform for sharing the gospel. 
A godly walk is a foundation for effective witness. Part of our godly walk is making the most of the opportunities. Willie to buy up or to grab the opportunity. In John 4, if you remember, Jesus Christ and his disciples were uh, in Samaria. They were the well. The Samaritan woman was there. And the disciples were focused on what? On their physical needs, on food. Something that that's easy for me to do, to focus on food. Food. And then they also had this journey that they had to complete. They had this task they had to take care of. But you see, Jesus saw the Samaritan woman's spiritual needs. Jesus made the most of the opportunity at hand when the disciples totally missed it. We know that this Christ talked with her. She came to Christ. And John 4, 39 says that many Samaritans from that town believed in Christ because of the woman's testimony. When God opens the door, walk through it. Now men, if you're like me, it's easy for us men to be task-oriented. I'm not saying that women can't be that way, but I, I think that we men tend sometimes more to be task-oriented. Isn't it really easy if we got something we got, you know, like these, these disciples, they, they had this task. They were headed somewhere, and they had to get there. My son, Zach and Jared, man, they beat me up in a good way, not in a bad way. When we're traveling down south, I don't want to stop. I don't want, I, I want to go through the, the drive-thru, because you know what? I got a task. I'm headed down south. I'm headed to Louisiana. I'm headed to Alabama, and I'm just, damn. I never forget one time Zach and Jared said they want to go to New Orleans and eat some beignets and some food. And they're like, Dad, why are you doing this? And in a good way, they kind of showed me that we're on vacation, which they said. We're on vacation. Let's go to New Orleans. You know what we did? We had a blast. And for the last three or four years, before we go, they check out restaurants, and we go, and we have a blast. But see, I can be so task-focused that I forget. I'm on vacation. Enjoy. In the same way, we can miss those opportunities to share the gospel. God opens the doors we need to walk through. Well, not only is our conduct important, but our words are important. And, and, and if we're honest, this whole thing of prayer is always a guilt thing for most of us, I think. And our words, it's so easy for us to say words that we regret. We can't take that. So I'm not wanting to beat us up because I beat me up first. It's hard. Our speech should be gracious. And Paul has repeatedly mentioned grace throughout the letter to the Colossians. And our presentation of the gospel is important that it is about we're saved by grace alone and not of works. And that needs to be repeated over and over in different ways for many people. But I think here more than that, 
Paul is saying, let your speech be filled with grace. Be gracious to others. And as sinners saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't need to condemn or be condescending to the non-believer. Grace is simply unmerited favor. Words should edify and build up. Our words should give mercy. We should be kind and humble. Second, our words should be seasoned with salt. What does it mean for one's words to be seasoned with salt? Well, first, salt is a preservative, which implies that our speech should be free of corruption and spoilage. It should show others whose lives may be spoiled the grace of Jesus Christ. And secondly, salt was used as a spice. It makes food taste better. My family says that I like salt too much. Our presentation of the gospel should stimulate people's taste to want more. Salt has that ability to make us thirsty. In the same way, our speech should make people thirst for the satisfying water that comes only from Jesus Christ. The wells on this earth leave people empty and dry, but we sometimes buy into the lies. But remember, these wells are empty, and our speech should be such, so filled with salt, we'll make people hungry for Christ. And our desire is, right, that they see our lives and say, what she or what he has, I need. Does my speech, does your speech make people thirsty? Well, our speech should be gracious. Our speech should be salty. Our speech should be sensitive. Verse 6 says, let your speech be gracious with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. Paul was simply saying, you can't have this memorized gospel thing. You've got to reach each person where they are. You've got to tailor-make your message for each person. It's important that we tailor every time we reach out to someone. They need that because each of us have different backgrounds. We've gone through different things. Some need to hear about grace over and over. And others just need to know that Christ is the answer. They know that they're guilty. Look at Jesus Christ and how he shared. With the Pharisees, man, he hit them hard, didn't he? He confronted them. But he was gentle with those who knew they were guilty. Well, earlier I mentioned our vision statement. Now we seek to be a diverse family of believers, reconciled by God, impacting the lives of people in Humboldt Park, in the Logan Square communities, and beyond through the gospel of Jesus Christ, accomplished as we see every person connected, and discipled, and transformed, and on mission. And we've seen today that, that we're to live in such a way 
that we see the kingdom come. That's our desire. That's why, that's why we go to work. That's why we do what we do. That's why we love is uh, to see the kingdom come. And Paul closes this letter out. And he exhorts them to pray. He exhorts them to live in a wise way. He exhorts them to remember where they are. To conduct themselves in such a way that people see Christ. And again, too often, it's so easy to say, well, Pastor Ralph's pastor, so he has to do this, or Pastor Kerry has to do this, or the elders have to do this. You see, God calls each one of us, each of us, to be missional, to be on mission. He's called you, he's called me. And wherever you are, at work, at school, in communities and families, God's placed you there. And as we share the gospel, I, I still remember the freedom that I felt when I went through Ephesians 1 and saw God's hand in evangelism. I, I can't help, as I think about this, the fact that Paul says to the believers there in Colossae, he says, pray that the doors may be open. Paul reminds these Colossians, and he reminds us that God is the one who creates opportunities for us to share. And this is consistent with Paul's um, missionary efforts. In 2 Corinthians 2, 12, he says, When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened the door for an opportunity for me. Acts 16, 6, Paul and Silas were traveling um, through Galatia and other areas because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in Asia. In Acts 16.4, Paul says that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to his message. I could go on and on. It's clear. It's clear this God who opens the doors. It's also clear that man has responsibility, woman has responsibility. Would it be praying? Would you live in such a way that our conduct and our conversation points people toward Jesus Christ? Remember, sharing the gospel and doing evangelism is not just sharing it verbally. It's not just living it. It's both. It's both. In the midst of life, we keep hearing, we watch movies or we see TV or this or that, you know, the life of Roddy, you know, this or that. We think about, well, that's the life. That's the life. The life, the life that we should be living <laughs> is a missional life. When we're on mission, living for Christ. And that is when we have the most joy, the most fulfillment in all that we do. Well, let's pray as the worship team comes up. Our Father, we thank you for Paul and for the Colossians. Father, thanks for reminder that 
we to pray. Father, sometimes we feel so guilty that we don't pray enough. Forgive us our heart desire to pray. Father, help us to connect, to be a part of other ministries.